Hello and welcome to Make a Living Story, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And right now we're going to be continuing our second mini-series, this one focusing on the 18th century. The format of this mini-series is that I will be figuring out questions that I might get asked on the orals exam, and then I'm going to go into deep dives into all the different ways that I might answer it, and all the different kind of facts that I might throw at the answer. Unlike the other mini-series, this one will not have a general argument. Hopefully all of this stuff will be linked together, because hopefully all of my thinking about these subjects is linked together, but you don't need to start from the beginning. This episode, I'm going to deal with a big question, the question of war. So I have uh, two or three ways of formulating this question, and I think that I might not have formulated it very well because my answer is really kind of long and rambling and filled with different facts and different perspectives, and I really need to think more about how to trim this down as I edit and revise. But here goes. The, the question starts out with this famous dictum by the sociologist and historian Tar Charles Tilley, and he's describing the way that states change in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. The thing that he's trying to explain is that states seem to get much more powerful. Uh, they get you know established bureaucracies, they take more taxes, they do more things, they get bigger places, they wear more jewels, and he identifies it like this. He says, the state makes war, and war makes the state. The idea being is that the modern state is uh, born in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries out of a process of um, highly competitive warfare. The only states that could survive in this highly competitive warfare were those that were more state-like that could raise the taxes and raise the armies and, you know, do all those things that states did. So that's the background. Given this, how can we square this account of uh, the modernization of the state through war with revisionist histories of 18th century Britain, which sees it not as a fundamental break between the traditional modern worlds, but rather as its own time period, one of slow transition? Another way to uh, spin that is just kind of more simple, and that is, sure, the state makes war and war makes the state, but what other things does war make? Here's what I'm going to talk about today. First, I'm going to go into a little bit of background. Basically, I'm just going to talk about the century of wars from 1688 to 1815. Then I'm going to attempt to make some sort of general answer that might be like an opening minute or two salvo if I get asked this question on the exams. Then I'm going to move into talking about particular themes in this question of politics and war. First, I'm going to talk about the rise of the fiscal military state. Then I'm going to move on and talk about how the actual uh, practice of warfare was influenced by politics. Then I'm going to talk about the rise of the nation. Then I'm going to see how we can look at the army and the navy and the military apparatus of the state as having influence on organizational developments. Um, and finally, I wrote down I'm going to talk about empire, but I, I'll, I'll wing that one. So let's start off with the general background. 
we usually start this period of British history that we might call the long 18th century with the date of 1688, which is when William III, uh, a Dutch stadtholder, was quote unquote invited in to kick out the um, Catholic James II. This made a major shift in Britain's orientation, uh, its geopolitical orientation. In the hundred years between Elizabeth and, say, James II, Britain had not been terribly involved in continental warfare and politics. Um, sometimes they had a couple wars with the Dutch uh, over trading rights, but they didn't get involved in any big continental wars. With William III, this would change. Because William III had one big thing that he wanted to do. And it was the reason why he went over to Britain to kind of occupy the throne. He wanted to mess up Louis XIV of France's big plans. Louis XIV was the Sun King. He was this megalomaniacal, wonderful politician who uh, built Versailles and uh, changed the French court and was a remarkable political mind. And he wanted the power of France to be the dominant power in all of Europe. But towards the end of his life, he had a fly in this ointment. And that fly was William III, who did not like France because France was Catholic and William was a Calvinist. Prior to William coming to Britain, uh, the English crown was actually allied with France. Charles II, who uh, was uh, James II's brother, uh, actually had a secret deal with France, whereby France would give him a lot of money, which meant that he wouldn't need to call Parliament, who were, you know, annoying. In exchange for that money, um, he would promise not to persecute Catholics, he would become Catholic himself, and he would annoy the Dutch. James II was going even further in his appeasement of France, and even some scholars say in copying France's organizational structure to try to become a mini France. Well, when William III came in, all bets were off. And William III involved himself in constant wars against France. These are called, this is the first war against France, called the Nine Years' War, or sometimes the War of British Succession. It lasted from 1689, when uh, William III came in, to uh, 1697. After that, we get a succession of wars. Uh, I'm just going to name them. I'm not going to go into the details of them, because uh, I just want to get a broad outline of it. Uh, the overview, though, is that all of these involve Britain v. France. There is the War of the Spanish Succession between 1702 and 1713, the War of Austrian Succession between 1739 and 1748, the Seven Years' War between 1756 and 1763, the American Wars, uh, where America gets born, yay, between 1775 and 1784, and then the big doozy, the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars between 1793 and 1815. That is a lot of war. So what's the general theme of what effects these wars had? The pressure of wars does not only create a new kind of quote-unquote modern bureaucracy, but it pushes a slow evolution of particular kinds of organizational forms that get tested by the competition of war. This leads to the spread of organizational innovations. 
like professional taxation, like um, ways that organizations buy and sell stuff, and like particular kinds of technological innovation that we'll get stuck into later. Alongside this, there's new kinds of political formulations. The fact that Britain won five out of six of these conflicts gave the nation a set of ideals to arrange themselves around. But also the pressures of war undermined some of the ways that people had been thinking of themselves as political actors. Two big moments here are the American War of Independence, uh, in which Americans argued for their rights as Englishmen to uh, not have uh, taxation without representation, which a lot of people in Britain could really, really uh, agree with. And the second one, the big one, is the clampdown in associational life after the Revolutionary uh, Wars in France, in which people suddenly realized that this thing of civil society that had been bubbling up all throughout the 18th century had profound political implications and it could be dangerous. Finally, one of the biggest things that happens out of this century of war is that Britain goes from being a little archipelago off the coast of Eurasia to, at the end of the 18th century, having a ton of colonies, particularly in India. And its orientation changes. It loses uh, a lot of its North American colonies and instead is looking out towards the rest of the world. So let's go through these themes one by one. The first theme is the rise of the fiscal military state. This is, the big story is that Britain made a system in which they could run up huge debts to fund their wars. The system was based on British people's ability to raise consistent levels of taxation. To do this, they needed two different things. The first thing was a new class of professionals who we can best represent by the excise taxmen who were able to collect taxes from people. The second thing that they needed was to make this taxation legitimate. And this was done through massive amounts of parliamentary oversight. So just one little snapshot of this. In 1789, before the Revolutionary Wars, when the French state is freaking out about their financial situation. They freak out so much that they chop off the head of their king. I mean, that's a really big freak out. In 1789, French tax amounted to 75 grams of silver a year per person. The same tax rate in Britain, 188. That's more than three times. Wait, no, that's more than double. I'm a historian, not a mathematician, but it's a lot more. And yet Britain did not have the same kinds of political problems that France did around its debt. And that debt was crazy. At the end of the Nine Years' War in 17, uh, 1697, they had uh, 16 million pounds of debt. At the end of the War of Spanish Succession in 1713, they had 36 million pounds. At the War of Austrian Succession in 1748, this had risen to 76 million pounds. At the end of the Seven Years' War uh, in, in 1763, it was 132 million. And at the end of the American War, it was 242 million. And I have uh, the detail about the end of the Napoleonic Wars somewhere else, but I think it was really big, more like 400 million. So they have a ton of debt. And yet, this debt gives the state power. It does it in a number of ways. 
First, it allows it to spread out the cost of warfare over a really long period of time, and because it provides consistent streams of revenue to do a lot more when there's not emergencies. And also it helps to knit the political nation together because this debt was funded, unlike other kinds of debt, by the Dutch model of having um, earmarked taxes that fund particular bonds. A bond is a thing when you basically loan a government some money in exchange for a monthly or half yearly or annual payment uh, that will, over the long period of time, amount to more than the amount that you loaned the government money. So when you give money to a government, you're basically trusting them that they will not renege on the deal. This is a really hard bet to make because lots and lots of governments defaulted on their loans. Britain defaulted on their loans a number of times before 1688. However, the big agreement was basically Britain is going to stand by its debts. It's going to do everything possible, even hurting industry, even hurting its own people, to make sure that those debts get paid off. And this means that all the people who give uh, investment to this debts, because there's not a lot of great investment opportunities out there at this time, you can basically get land or you can get government debts. And a lot of people started to put their money in government debts, not just rich people, but... Uh, people who needed a steady income, trusts that were uh, made to look after uh, orphans and widows and stuff, um, smaller investors too. All these people had an interest in the government keeping going. So we can see the birth of this uh, at a particular naval battle, the Battle of Beachy Head in 1690. This was a major defeat of the British. This is during the Nine Years' War, and the French basically completely destroy the British fleet. This is really bad because Britain is an island, and although a lot of historians will tell you that that island is a natural moat uh, separating it from the continent, in fact, before the 18th century, that island was more like a highway, and there were eight large-scale sea invasions of Britain between 660 AD and 1649. I mean, think of all those Vikings who came over to northern England and made all the people's hairs blonde. So Britain needed to make its navy again, and that cost a lot of money. And the government then needed money really quickly. What they did was that they created a private company called the Bank of England that would basically loan the government all of this money in exchange for being able to have monopolies on certain kinds of financial transactions. And people agreed. People bought up Bank of England stock. People started buying bonds. It was incredibly successful. And this is the creation of the funded debt. And this was incredibly important to Britain's continued military power. At the beginning of this time period, in 1693, the British fleet was not provisioned. It could only stay at sea for two whole weeks. In 1763, however, because all of the investment in material and organization that this extra money had given Britain, this fleet could stay at sea for six straight months. And this was in part what gave it an edge over France in all of these constant wars. So this story that I told of the modernization narrative of British warfare and state-making 
might lead us to think that this was something that politics didn't touch. We get a simple story in which the better institutions of British government finance were able to wear down the weaker institutions of France and Amsterdam. Hooray for Britain! First modern nation! This is why we got the Industrial Revolution! Yay! But this is not exactly the whole story. It wasn't simply government oversight, high rates of taxation, and a balance of powers that makes Britain military successful. There's a great deal of ideology that went into Britain's military policy. We can think of this by thinking of the different political players at the time. There's Whigs and Tories, uh, which are also complicated by the fact that after 1715, Britain's king is actually German and spends lots of time in Germany and uh, has a private army in Germany and has a foreign policy which the king sets. The king sets the foreign policy which is focused on protecting Germany. So first off is what people could agree on. Both sides of this debate, Whigs and Tories and Patriots, agreed no standing army. The standing army was bad. Uh, this was one of those things that, that Britain British people were really, really worried about, you can't have a standing army, except in Ireland, where there was a standing army because you can't trust the Irish. The Tories, however, favored what's known as a blue water strategy, avoiding costly wars on the continent in favor of building up a strong uh, navy and protecting the sea lanes and only engaging at war at sea to protect interests there. Uh, this would mean, you know, no big colonies, no wars in the continent, a limited projection of British troops on the ground. The Whigs, they liked the Navy for sure, everybody liked the Navy, but they sometimes favored a more active policy, pushing for the use of British troops, uh, and more than that, pushing for financial favors to uh, British allies and the hiring of mercenaries. I should mention that if you look carefully at the timeline that I gave you of all the wars, there is a huge gap between the end of the War of Spanish Succession in uh, 1713 and the War of Austrian Succession in 1739. And the reason for that is a particular Whig named Robert Walpole, the first prime minister, uh, the, um, uh, the, the curtain master, is that what they call him? The barrier master? Uh, he's, he was the Svengali of British politics for 20, 30 years. And his deal was actually uh, against the trend of this constant warfare. He explicitly made peace with France, even on unfavorable terms when he had to, in exchange for developing domestic peace and prosperity. Um, he avoided war at any cost, and war was actually the thing that brought him down. But we're not going to go into that. That's kind of complicated. Now, there's another uh, uh, area of contestation here, um, especially after the reign of George III, um, in which war becomes a central rallying point for a number of political actors. You actually know a lot of these names because they become really important to the American patriotic cause. And so we have things in American history that's named after this. One person is uh, John Wilkes Booth. John Wilkes Booth is named after the famous patriotic uh, politician, the Donald Trump of the 18th century, John Wilkes. And we've told the story of John Wilkes before in the podcast, and it's too complicated to go into, but suffice to say he was a very controversial politician. His main claim to controversy was that in his scurrilous newspaper, the North Britain, he published a 
uh, libel against the king, basically calling out the king by name and calling his uh, activities wrong. This was something you could not do. You could not insult the king. And this got Wilkes into a ton of hot water. But we often forget what he was complaining about. He was complaining about the peace deal uh, at the end of the uh, Seven Years' War. This, he said, was letting the French off too easily. Here we see the organization of the patriotic sentiment. Um, and you can see also another great American landmark, Admiral Vernon, who gives his name to George Washington's uh, uh, home of Mount Vernon, um, who's famous not only for winning a tide-turning naval battle at Puerto Rosso, but also his uncompromising urge to not give in to peace talks. The patriotic element criticized the activities of the government, arguing that they were letting France off the hook too easily, that Britain should take everything that they could possibly conquer and hold it as tightly as possible and wring out France for every cent. And in a way, they had the point, because the costs of war after the Seven Years' War were so monumentous that they led to not only the American Revolution, which is overtaxation, which the British were trying to impose to pay for the war, but also the French Revolution, which happened because of financial crisis that was caused because of all of these wars. There's also a local versus national story here that, that I don't want to get into because we're already really over time. Let's move on now to talk about how war generates the nation. So the big striking thing about this is that out of six wars, Britain wins five. This goes some way to explaining two big things about British history. The first is why they didn't have a revolution. After 1688, there's no real big violent confrontation in Britain, whereas Every other country you can think of has one, or two, or a couple. The second is to explain how a sense of a British nation gets constructed as distinct from the countries that make up Britain, England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland. And the idea that Coley proposes is that combined with the, you know, heady scent of all of this victory against France, there is a certain kind of orientation that British people start to adopt. It is resolutely Protestant. And this interprets uh, the wars against France as good old Protestant, freeborn Englishmen against French Catholic slavery. And this is told not only through the series of successful wars, but through successful Protestant literary figures like Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is a big, beautifully illustrated book all about how Catholics like killing Protestants, and uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. It's sung in the National Anthem, which talks just all about how Britain's really good at making the seas. It's told in toasts at uh, uh, inns where people toast uh, not only George III or uh, George IV or whatever kings around at that time, but they also toast the military victories. It's told through a national identification with the nation in war. So imagine this story happening through a bunch of people reading the newspaper and reading of, of their country's successes and failures in war. And we know from contemporary accounts that this is what people freaked out about when they read the newspaper. They'd say, hey, do you hear how we did in Gibraltar? Did you hear what's happening in King Philip's War? And when things went badly, they'd be sad. When things went well, they'd drink healths to the king. 
So this endemic warfare was a central backbone to knitting together the nation. It didn't always work, of course. 1815 rolls around the end of the Napoleonic Wars, and Britain seems very close to revolution. Uh, it has constant rural unrest, incredibly high rates of uh, indebtedness. The economy is suffering after 20-odd years of war. It is not doing well. This is not a story of inevitable success, but this story of triumphalism in like the, the most neutral term explains some way of the political stability and cultural stability of British identity in the long 18th century. So let's now move on to talking about organization, which I think is going to be our last topic. I, I'll move talk about empire later. Now, discussions of organization are not often brought up when we discuss warfare in the 18th century, but warfare is a science mostly of getting things organized. Troops need to go to particular places, they need to be roused from the populace, they need to get money to pay for things, they need to be fed, they need to be clothed, they need to be told where to go, they need to be communicated with, they need to be paid when they're done. All of these things need to happen to make war successful. When we talk about this in the 18th century, we mostly focus on the uh, administrative side because of a number of great books about uh, the fiscal military state but we don't focus as much on the actual organizational inventions that go into making warfare work. Just to explain a little bit about this expansion of bureaucracy, I have two numbers for you. In 1714, there are only 114 commissioners who work on the boards of the uh, British national government. Six years later, there's 1,200, and there's an increasing professionalization of the national bureaucracy, most of which is devoted to raising taxes and making war. The Navy was the big focus of this. Um, they were the biggest organization in Britain by far. Uh, maybe uh, the whole general government dwarfed them, but they had a number of precociously modern forms. Not only did they have massive uh, shipbuilding works in Portsmouth and uh, Yarmouth and other towns like that, but they also uh, did a lot of stuff around victualing, of, around actually getting the food to feed the people who were going on the Navy, making the biscuits and stuff. And this, uh, oddly enough, is the first example of the vertically and horizontally integrated organization that I know of. Um, hundreds of years earlier than um, organizational theorists identify it happening in America. By this I mean the British Navy doesn't just buy stuff from uh, contractors uh, when it's getting food. It has its own breweries, its own bakeries that have their own farms. This is the integrated company that Alfred Chandler happens when you get the economies of scale and scope of the 19th and 20th century, and it's happening in British government, which is kind of an odd story for the organizational sociologist stuff. The Navy was the single biggest purchaser of food on the London market, and it managed the market so that they would have larger firms to buy from, so it was administratively easier. And this we might be able to connect with the episode we did a couple days ago on the agricultural revolution to explain one reason why there were so many big farms. Well, because the Navy liked them. The Navy ran their own hospitals. Uh, the hospital in Portsmouth was the biggest hospital in England by four times when it was built in 1761. Now, 
I think that it's likely that these organizational innovations in the Navy in particular had some effect on the organizational field in general. But there's been very little work done at all on this subject. And I have a lot more to say on the subject, but um, one of the lessons that I have to teach myself for these exams is the value of concision. And I know that this episode in particular has been a little flabby. Uh, so I'm going to go back to the drawing board and try to figure out a way that I can condense down this 28 minutes into a solid two uh, and get still some sense of what I'm talking about. Um, but thanks very much for listening so far. Um, thank you to Duncan Barton for the image and Jonathan Lear for the music. Find Jonathan on SoundCloud and on uh, uh, Bandcamp. His na last name is spelled L-E-A-R. Give him money. He likes money a lot. Um... If you like the show, rate and, re and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tell a friend, tell me that you're listening. Ask me Oral's questions when you pass me in the street. Um, thanks very much for listening.